The following Roadshow podcast contains strong language and listener discretion is advised. Rowers tend to use invective and colourful language to explain even the simplest points. This Roadshow podcast is no exception. Then uh, directly qualifying into this final, Eric Murray and Hamish Bond, who were out of the uh, gold medal winning four in 2007, but of course that four only finished seventh in the Olympic Games, so that was a huge disappointment. Both these two pairs, the British pair and New Zealand pair, have both come out of their coxless fours, and I think that was a very good New Zealand coxless four, world champions in 2007. Right now, the New Zealanders are able to just look back across and know they're in control of this race. Yeah, they're just lifting it a little bit, the New Zealanders. Now they're aware that the British sprint is coming upon them, but so is the line, and they're going to win this. And that's a great start to their European campaign here. Eric Murray and uh, Hamish Bond do it very, very classily. And this is the men's pair, the boat in which uh, Murray and Bond were so successful last season. Really the dominant pair right the way through to uh, Poznan and the World Championships. And they've been dominant all the way through the current campaign. They're over 43 strokes a minute. They want it. They need it. They are the world champions. They want to keep that British title. are coming back, though. They haven't given in. Hodges reaching out. They're remembering that Beijing finish. Are they coming back? What a sensational race. Unbelievable here. It's 11 to 0 in favour of the Kiwis. Are they going to make it a full dozen? Or are the British going to just get back and deny them on the line? Fantastic, unbelievable performance here by both crews. But it is the Kiwis who've kept the bow in front. Coming towards the line now. Just a few strokes to go. Oh, oh it's that close. race. That is the best race I've seen in the World Championships ever. Murray puts his hand up, but a sensational race. Amazing performance from the New Zealanders to take it through. After competing internationally for a number of years and racing at the Rio Games, Jake and I decided that there is so much more to every athlete's story than uh, just watching their final race and watching their A final on the TV. So the goal of the Row Show is to go into every single athlete's story and the, that the huge work and, and dedication behind those performances and really have a look at, at what makes them tick and, and what gets them onto that podium. We know the passion that we have for sport and for rowing is shared by many others around the world and I think we really find it important that there is a way in which we can engage with the top athletes in, in our sport of rowing and really listen to their stories, the hardships they have to go through, the training regimes that they have to go under to get that final result because of course winning that gold medal is not the complete picture of what they have to go through. Welcome to The Row Show. We're your hosts, Lawrence Britton and Jake Green. And in this podcast, we're going to go into everything related to sport and performance. And we're also going to talk a little bit about rowing. In South Africa. It brings people together, it breaks down barriers. My passion winning to be the best. To be the best is something we strive for. Sacrifice, crucial roles, high fit. Compassion. Great. Passion. Fiction. Ultimate goal. Glory. Relentless training. Pain. Pain. Hello ladies and gents, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of The Row Show. We're coming to you from up in the Maluti Mountains in Lesotho yeah. on our training camp. Uh, welcome, it's Lawrence. And this is Jake, and today we have one of the 
all-time greats, one of the goats of our sport. He's won 69 races back-to-back. He has two Olympic gold medals. He has two world's best times in the pair and the Cox pair. And we're chatting to Eric Murray today from New Zealand. Yeah, shit, man. It was just such a cool episode. Uh, straight out the blocks, we get into the really cool stuff that uh, that he's been into, and it's just such a cool chat, hey? Yeah, no, it's been awesome. As you can see from the episode title, this is part one. We're going to be discussing his years in the fall, his first two Olympic Games, and mainly his transition from the uh, from the pair into the fall. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, he raced his juniors in two thousand in the eight, and it took him basically eight years of of rowing to to really start to to do well he luckily made it into the 2004 um athens olympics in the four he rode in the four with mahi drysdale so that's just pretty cool by itself and also in the great race uh where pinsent and uh and the canadians go head to head and it's just really really cool that he's in that race and and another element to his story yeah and then after 2004 they uh, his first international medal, he won in 2006 at the First World Cup. And then uh, in the in the episode, we talk about his 2006 World Champs where they won their heat. They rode a dead heat in the semi-final. They rode exactly the same time as USA. So USA and New Zealand were third. They had to re-race just the two of them to see who would make the A-final. Unfortunately, New Zealand lost out. So they, uh, they made um, B-final in, in 2006. It's a big talking point in this episode. Yeah, I think the, the main uh, elements or the main topics of this chat is how it's taken a long time and that like no success just comes easily and quickly. And I mean, Eric had to really work and do the hard yards in those early days. And I mean, you know, everyone just remembers the Kiwi pair and this unbeaten streak and the best uh, crew of the best rowing crew of all time. But they don't realize that, you know, there's there's eight years behind that uh, that crew that no one really sees no one really wants to talk about that much so first up we really get into to that that part of the training that part of the system on how he just developed the the rowing skills to be able to then get in the pair with hamish and absolutely destroy yeah um but that says pretty much about it we love the show it was uh a really really cool experience we learned a lot and we really hope you guys do too before we get going We've got a few things that we need to cover. We haven't read out any reviews for a while. Yeah. So we're just going to go. A bit slack here when you engage with the audience. And we've actually got quite a lot of uh, commentary around the place uh, in these last few weeks. So here's a few of our um, of our iTunes reviews. We got one here it's a while ago from Stace Paddy. A great show. Awesome to hear the insights of the guests as well as the race reviews of the hosts. Interesting even for someone who's not involved very much in the sport. A lot of useful insights into performing at the highest level that can be translated to any sport or career. Nice. Jeez. I'll take that as positive. Five stars as well. Yeah, Lawrence, really, really Lawrence gets a golden star on the forehead now. <laughs> Why? Because I read well. Yeah, it did quite well. <laughs> That's a really, a really good uh, good review though. Yeah. I mean, she covered everything. She really went into the um, the guests our stuff i mean we were only really good on uh on reviewing the races though so maybe we need to up our game when we have Clearly, guests on the, on the show there's some uh passive aggressiveness coming so from Stace. we'll get there thanks stace next up kaylin myberg um she has said it's a five-star review 
She said, definitely one of my favorite forms of entertainment to listen to on my way to and from training because every guest brings their own knowledge and wisdom. Some great stories and journeys that would probably not be shared otherwise. So thank you. Exclamation mark at the end. Oops. Thanks, Kellen. We appreciate the review. Um, again, five out, of, five out of five for the review. Lawrence is a bit slack on the reading, but you know. I know. And also what I, I'm upset about here is we didn't even get a mention. Oh, we didn't get a we mention. We didn't get a mention. Okay, that's she didn't even let us know like, oh, she really likes not Lawrence or <laughs> not so much Jake or anything. All we got was the guests bring oh, so much knowledge and wisdom yes. to the episode. So, I mean, we know our guests are good. Um, but yeah, that's just really slack to, to not even talk about the hosts. But it is still five stars, so we'll, take, uh, we'll, take, we'll take what we can get. Um then just to brush up on um on the on the previous episode the great debate there was a lot of controversy yeah, surrounding controversy, uh, this this episode a lot of feedback and a lot of people had a lot to say especially <laughs> on instagram on some of our um our posts and i had to defend myself quite hard <laughs> i'm just gonna take this oh, moment here where there's no comments coming flying straight back at me and i got some time to just put the record st- uh, record straight because here from uh, i'm gonna butcher some of these names i won't lie so just bear with me from uh, moran stanopel he says he stands with jake Robbed of yes, the win. another person to the cause. <laughs> Hashtag recount. There we go. You know what? I and <laughs> you see, even Noddy here jumping on the bandwagon, trying to get his comments in about uh, being uh, being stuck in there. Firstly, there's no recount. My decision is final. No, it's fine. I'll be the judge show. on the next one. I will be the judge on the next one. Um, yeah, we also got uh, Staunchem45, 100% think the 8-1. Jake Milton Green, you were robbed. Nicole Van Vake needs to be disqualified. <laughs> <laughs> Nicole, yes. Oh. I love this feedback. So that was very hard. Uh, harsh words from uh, Stuart. I don't know harsh what Nicole words. has done to, to anger Staunchman45 so harshly, but uh, we'll see. We'll have to... Uh, have him on the show yeah. for a great debate and see how he fares and if he yeah. gets roasted by uh, some others. Then we have old Zach. Uh, Zach Wood, he was actually quite hot, quite, he was uh, on the fence here. Just finishing, just finished listening to the show. One of your best yet. Very nice. Hate to be an anorak though. <laughs> yeah, we had to go online and just quickly search what an anorak is. Um, Lawrence, but Jake and David, you were robbed. No, wait, sorry. He said you was robbed. You was robbed. You was okay, robbed. Man. So, I mean, he, he showed his supreme English bringing up some uh, uh, Anorak reference, but then he couldn't even finish his sentence with the, the right English. So, um, we'll see how we go. But then, no, on top of that, though, he said only in the debate results... Uh, I do still think the single is the premier event. So he first he tunes me, then he comes back around to say that I was right. No, look, it, look, it was a con- controversial episode nonetheless. And now that I'm here, I'd also just like to apologize for my 
outbursts at the end there. I was quite upset. Your so barbaric behavior. My barbaric Jake. behavior. I apologize. I'll try to be better next time. definitely something that would come from someone in an eight. Mm. A single would be way more oh, composed okay. under such pressure. All right, next time, guys, I will be the judge and <laughs> I will settle the score. So then, so then we, we said to Zach that he can't be on both sides of the event and he carried on digging himself a hole saying I fir- I'm firmly on the side of the single being the premier event and having given us the best athletes over the years male and female done he should have just left his uh, his comment right there it would have been fine but he carries on saying but I think Jake and David made a better argument which is even more impressive given that they're wrong <laughs> <laughs> nice <laughs> which I suppose is really good I must say yeah rounded it off quite well um, he also said, oh, while he's at it, great format, good to hear you guys back on the air. Mm. And we have another comment there from uh, Durban Rower, no name, so we don't know who he is. Anonymous Durban Rower. Great show, as always. Thank you so, very much, thank good you sir. Very much, guys. You should head on to iTunes or um, SoundCloud and give us a five-star review. Yeah. Those reviews, by the way, on iTunes and, and SoundCloud make a big difference to how our show performs online. So please do that. It makes a huge, it makes a huge help. And uh, we'll definitely be bringing more uh, of the, 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 the great debates. It's not necessarily going to be on the eight versus single or just events. It can be across any issue, but since we got such good feedback, you'll definitely be expecting another one in the future. Yeah, also, we had so much fun recording that episode, so... Oh, um, and now that, guys, now that we've got you guys, why don't you guys send us uh, some ideas on what you would like to hear us debate about? Yeah, that would be great. We'll put a post up on Instagram, yeah. and then you guys will just comment on uh, whether you like, uh, which ideas you guys want to hear debated. You know, it can be anything, obviously, rowing-related, but... Yeah. Uh, let us know. Go out, think out the box. Think for for think about topics that are really close together, that either one could uh, could win. We'd love to mm. hear what you guys want to listen to. Um, but that's about it. You can yeah. also message or call us uh, on WhatsApp, email us. Uh, everything's in the show notes below. And yeah, yeah. So uh, we end this episode getting into the pair, getting into the the themes of the training and the racing. We don't really go into too much detail on like big results or, you know, we know those things uh, pretty well. So we're going to go into the deeper stuff, into the training, into the philosophies and we end off starting to get into that and we'll pick up in part two on the really uh, stuff that uh, that carries him on to, to being a, becoming an absolute legend. Yeah. We, we, what you're going to hear today is hopefully a version of Eric you've never heard before. Nice. Tops. Sweet, guys. Enjoy the show. How's it going, guys? Uh, today we're chatting to Eric Murray. Eric, it's great to have you on the show. Yeah, good day, guys. Yeah, really cool to, to have you on the show. We, we've been trying to, to get you for a while, and our, both of our busy schedules has uh, been a bit tricky to, to get this right. So really, really cool to, to finally have you on the show. No, it's good. Yeah, no, share some, share some experience and tell a few yarns, mate. That's what we're here for. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, rowers always love talking about rowing, so I'm sure we'll have no shortage <laughs> of content. Yeah, and so we've got to get straight off the bat, we've got to get in, uh, into your 2004 Athens Olympic campaign. Um, and I just wanted to uh, start off with, I was looking back in results and it looked like in 2003, the New Zealand men's four just managed to qualify um, in that fifth spot in that uh, B final. It looked like it must have been quite a, a crack of a race and you were in the Cox four. Chat to us a bit about 
coming off that world champs and and the selection that you guys went through for the uh, for the Olympics? Yeah, well, I, I guess even further back than that, we we had some pretty good success um, in the sort of early two thousands with uh, and even the late nineties with Rob Dell. Um, we never really had too much on the men's side, actually. To be fair, our, our four got six um, in Sydney. Uh, and then sort of a flow on from that, it was just a real rebuilding stage. We had the Everswindale twins going pretty quick. Um, you know, they were consistently winning, but they were they were the, the best in the team um, and everyone was looking up to them. And it was really, we came into the program when we were the first ones to really centralise where they said, right, if you want to be in the team, you've got to move to Carapiro, Lake Carapiro, Cambridge, and we're going to be training here pretty much full time. Um, so to get a part-time job and work in that. So... I was quite young because I'd come out of my juniors in 2000 and, you know, everyone has the aspiration, I really want to go to the Olympics. Um, and you, you say it, but you don't really realise it until you're sort of progressing along the stages and you're seeing your improvements and you're seeing how close you're getting to these guys that are already in the elite team, that it starts to come up on you that, oh, hang on a minute, I'm actually not that far behind. Um, you know, and if I just do a little bit more, I can get there. So for me... Um, I thought I was probably good enough, but I wasn't, um, to make the four in 2003. And so it ended up that there was four guys in there and a couple of guys in the pair. And then they, they put another four of us as like a development program um, into the Cox four. And so we, we had no expectations. They were just like, right, we just want you guys to develop to make sure there's enough people in the squad. Um, and so we went away in that. We got fifth, which wasn't too bad. Um and then, yeah, we were sitting on the banks watching our Olympic dreams nearly bloody slip away from us because the guys, um, they had a great semi-final. They went toe-to-toe with the Aussies in Milan and they just got pipped for fourth. And, of course, if you're in that final, you're pretty much automatically qualified. And then we were watching the B final and they last. And we are like, oh, my God. And then it was a sprint to the line. And I remember the like all crews were within, like, 1.5 seconds of each other. And, and I say it all the time to... All the young athletes that have come through in my time, and I'm like, you want to watch the best, most exciting racing at any level, Olympics, world champs, whatever it might be, is B-finals of qualification year. Those are the most outstanding races because people have got their literally their dreams and aspirations on the line because if you don't get in that top 11 or that top 10 or top 9 or whatever it might be, it's a massive road to even get to the Olympics. But if you make that, like, you might get fifth in the V-final. <laughs> so you're 11th overall. And there's people celebrating on the line, you know. And those races are amazing to watch. Those races, I'm with uh, you. Those races are so bloody good. And we've often said, oh, we've often said that they should, world rowing on qualification year, should row the B-finals after the A-finals as, like, the, the big races of the day, like final races of the day. Oh, they, they should. And, and tell me if I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to look back to 2011. Like the South African lightweight men's four, were yeah. they not like third or fourth or fifth in the they, B-final? The, the whole race, because I was on the bank for that race, and that was put a couple of years on my... Uh, I aged quite a bit in that race. My brother was in that boat. <laughs> and every single crew at some point of the race was leading and coming last. So the, yeah. that was one of the most crazy races before. And yeah, as you say... People are crossing the finish line and celebrating like they've won world champs. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's crazy to see. And that basically from 
from that for me like was after that I sort of knew okay if if your crew goes really well at the like the world championships you know if you're in the final you're getting a medal they don't tend to sort of muck around with crews too much you know that unless you're doing something pretty outstanding so for me it was like a great opportunity and, it, and all the guys in our cox floor because we were like right they got 11th <laughs> it's fair game you know like no seat was safe no one was like there in a dead suit position and from there, it was basically just the summer of seat racing and training and combinations um, until, like, the, the final crew selection was made. And, like, we, we always make our selections in New Zealand in March. So, um, like, uh, the first week of March, we had the selection trials. And, and, yeah, I was in. So I was like, you beauty. Done. Yeah. And I see you. Um, I mean, it's, it's crazy because that's, we've spoken about that race many times in the past because um, being in Athens – it's that force race was huge, and we we've had Jake Vettel on the show. So mo- majority of his, his interviews, we were chatting about the race. And you know, when when we were watching the race, when it goes to New Zealand boat, we we're like, oh shit, of course, like there's Eric, there's Mahi Drysdale, like two huge <laughs> names in the sport, like having racing in the final too. So it must have been, you know, an awesome, actually an awesome uh, uh, Olympics to be part of. And I mean, I guess for you guys. Obviously, you know, gold medals, what we all strive for, but coming away with uh, fifth place in the A final, I mean, that must have been quite, quite a, a big thing yeah. for you at that age. It, it, it was, and, and that for me was, was one thing, because our year, even then, like, we went to the World Cups and we weren't making the finals, you know, we were getting sort of, oh, eighth, ninth, I think we got, maybe, um, and, or which might have even been ninth or tenth, whatever it was, and, and we were sort of sitting there going, man, like, we're going to even struggle to make it into the final. Um, and so for us, first and foremost, all we wanted to do when we went to those Olympics was make it into the final. Um, you know, and when we actually achieved that, we, we had a, a really, uh, and, and I, I see it all the time, you know, with experience and the time in the sport, you see it now, and, and I see it at the Olympics as well. There's, there's always the crews, and they race their final in the semi-final. You know, if you're an inexperienced crew, you're young, or you know, um, it's, it just hasn't been going that well for you that year, whatever it might be. Um, you you have to race a hundred percent and give a hundred percent in that semi-final just to make it into the final. And then, of course, because you've given it a hundred percent, the next time you go out to race, which is in the final, you try and give a hundred percent, but you're not going to be able to get a hundred percent back out of it. And that's mm. why a lot of the times the finals are quite spread because people have thrown the kitchen sink at making the final. And, and that's exactly what we did in, in 04, was we, we were toe-to-toe with the British the whole bloody way, and we ended up just under a length behind them. Um, and, of course, we made it into the final, but we were, we were done. And then, of course, in the final, we, they just the good crews, those guys, the Canadians, the British, the Canadians and Italians, just rode away from everyone, you know, and it was like, oh, you know, game over. So it was disappointing, but it wasn't. You know, it was like, I wish we'd been gone a little bit better in the final, because it was such a historical sort of race as well. Um, but the fact was that we were inexperienced. And, and the, the best thing that came out of it was the whole experience. And then from that point, it was like, right, I'm, I'm hungry. I want more. I want to make sure I'm one of the people getting the medals next time, not just someone here on the start line uh, making up the numbers. Yeah, I think it's a really a really cool point of like, uh, you know, the medalists are crews that are, are able to get through the semi final just at like 90 95 or so percent and they're not really going right into the red to to make it through so that they can put that big performance on on the the final day yeah yeah i've i've said it and i say it a lot to a lot of people um you know in my travels and 
And, you know, especially like when you go to, say, a World Cup, World Cup, World Champs is a little bit different because you've got time in between them. But at a World Cup, you know, generally you're going to race three races, okay? And if you can get away with giving, uh, like, 97% in your heat to get it through to the semi, and then you have to give 98% in the, in the semi, 98, 99 to make it into the final, then you can give it 100% in the final, you know? And, and you, you're going to be close to giving 100% back because you haven't had to, like, go full gas the whole time. But when you're inexperienced, when you're young, you've got to try and give 100% every time. And if you give 100%, the next time you go out, you give 100, you only get 98 in return. And then you go and do it again, you get 96 in return. So, um, yeah, just, it's just these things you learn over time, um, which, which you just have to. you know. And there's no other way than going out there, racing, um, being in some tough situations, and then just training more, being under pressure more. And it just comes with maturity as well. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's. I guess it's all. It's all part of the process, especially as an athlete, as a rower, as the years go by, trying to find that more success. You know, having the presence of mind to get, to get the, all the training done, so you can approach the same final, get through, and still have stuff left in the tank for that final. Moving into two thousand and five, what was like? What was happening in Zealand rowing? What were? It seems like the the four was definitely a boat that was going to keep moving forward. I know you in the pair. You had um, George Bridgewater. And, and Twaddle. Nathan Twaddle as well. So chat to us about, <clears throat> about that that process going forward to Beijing. Yeah, well, see, after after the Athens, the <clears throat> the sport started to get a bit of funding. You know, the whole of New Zealand, all the different sports started to get a little bit more funding. So we were getting a little bit of funding to train. Um, you know, it wasn't wasn't a lot. It was enough to pay a few bills here and there. Um, and and of course, it was it was good. So we had. Good people in the program. We had more people wanting to be involved, um, and ultimately, like with with New Zealand, you know, we, we probably had ten guys on a rotation. So, you know, you can easily do a four and a pair, um, you know, and uh, but it's really difficult to try and get an eight. Um, and so, of course, ultimately, like you know, New Zealand loves the eight. Um, you know, there's a lot of lot of countries that do. Um, and we, we were just trying to develop a good combination or a good group of people that were at the same level because that's the hardest thing. You know, like if you've got four guys going really well and then number one, two, three, four in your program and then number one gets injured, you're effectively rowing with two, three, four, five. You know, and so number five is nowhere near as good as number one. Yeah, so it's this whole trying to get everyone to be at a really consistent level. We just we didn't really have that, but we were, we were trying. So. You know, we, we made the final the following year. We had a young guy in the crew because Mahe went into the uh, Mahe went into the single, um, and yeah, and then it was just basically after that. Um, you know, we had the, the whole team actually went really, really well. And in Japan, we were the only ones that didn't get a medal. Everyone else won, um, <laughs> which is quite funny. And uh, and then yeah, it was basically just from that. It was just rebuilding again. Um, you know, going well. You know, okay, we. We're still in the final. We're still within a hunt, you know. But how do we how do we break into that next level, you know? Like how can we actually get in amongst the medals? Because we were we were there, we were close, but we were, you know, two or three seconds, you know, uh, off actually being amongst these guys for the medals. And and that's where you've started. You've got to really you've got to have a big mindset change in the way that you're actually starting to do things, and you know, starting to go that little bit of an extra mile in order to get to that. Because you can get to that level. But to kick it on is another thing, like entirely. Yeah, and it's it's actually something I really want to I want to get into because I think a lot of people they see the Kiwi pair, they see the the eight years of winning, and they don't realize that I mean you rode juniors in two thousand, and it took you from two thousand to two thousand and six 
to get to your, your first uh, international podium. So I think that people don't yeah, realize yeah, and, that. Yeah, and that is. That's, that's all a lot of people, you know, and, and I see it here in, in our program at the moment, actually. You know, you've got these young guys coming through and they're a year or two out of, like, under 23s and stuff, and they're sort of complaining, oh, you know, I don't know. And this, I'm like, mate, honestly, <laughs> it took me, like, five years after my under-23s before we bloody got a medal. You know, like, we, we had some good results, but nothing great. But we have had some exceptional people. You know, we've had a couple of the girls in the girls' program, especially. You know, they've been really young, you know, 23, 24, and they're starting to, like, win world titles and stuff. And you're like, wow, okay, that's that's pretty good. So people see that. But um, when you start talking statistics and stuff like that, you know, the average age of an Olympic gold medalist in rowing is like 30. Yeah. You know, so don't don't, don't say, you know, there's, there's exceptions to the rules. You know, there's some older people and then some younger people, but... If you take the majority of it, it is around 30. So, you know, if you're doing it before that, awesome. But if you're going to go into it, especially like Olympic stuff, you've got to, you can't just think, oh, I'm just going to go to this Olympics. And, you know, you've got to be in it for the long haul, you know, like 8, 10, 12 years thinking the long game and knowing that it's going to take that time to get there. And it's going to be up and down, left and right, <laughs> backwards and forwards. And, and that's just what you've got to expect. You know, there's, there's just no other way you can do it. Yeah, I think I feel like I mean, especially I think in in recent years now that social media is so prevalent um, in our day to day lives, I feel like when people watch the the, the top performers in our sports, um, when their people watch you guys when you were performing your unbeaten streak, and you know now that on social media we've got access to each other's lives so easily. I mean, people f- uh, lose focus about you know the time it takes to build success, and I think. You know, we live in a society now where you look at success and you automatically assume that those people are have always been that way, and they were just born with something that's they they're naturally talented and never really, you know, yeah. had to mm. work their way to that success. And you actually, I mean, you're a perfect example because you look at at your history and you're like, holy shit, this oak worked for years before he got to um, the legacy that you have in the sport, which is. And it's amazing to see because it's, it's, I think it's especially important for younger rowers out there to keep reiterating this idea that, you know, it takes a while. You need to be in it for the hard run. Yeah, yeah. And, and there is no, there's no shortcuts. Um, and you, you just got to, you got to grind away and you've got to learn things about yourself. You know, over the years, we learned some, like, I, I thought we trained hard. You know, I thought we were doing things pretty well. You know, and then when we got it, like Dick Tonks as a coach, oh, I had no idea what hard training was. You know what I mean? Like we went, we went from being tired and going, "Oh man, that was a hard session." To going, oh, <laughs> what we used to do was a piece of cake. Um, you know, and it was just, you know, you just there's little things that you get pushed and and you got to try and create new benchmarks and and you just got to think about it yourself and go, well, you know, could I have gone a bit harder? You know, why don't we try that next time or whatever. Um, and, and that's the whole thing with it's really just the maturity around it is learning what you can and can't do, learning how far you can push yourself and then just trying to do it again and again, you know, and just and just keep pushing those boundaries. That's all you got to try and do. Yeah. Um, and then so in 2006, obviously, that's your first uh, um, podium, but it's also the first time uh, Hamish comes into the boat as well. Um, was that quite a like? A change to to the crew when when Hamish joined the guy we joined you guys or were you just starting to, yeah, to all of you yeah. get online? Yeah, we'll see. Hamish, what happened was um, 
was Carl Meyer, who was who he'd been in the force since like 2003. Um, really, really great guy. He's an engineer. He's really smart, um, and he was like his training was just the same all the time. Like he was a workhorse. You 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 could trust him to turn up any day and be on his on his game the whole time. And he had actually shot back down because he was working for his old man um, down in the middle of the South Island in New Zealand. And he went down and he rode with Hamish. And, of course, Hamish had been in the under-23s. They'd actually gone really well that year, but then one of the guys got sick in, in Amsterdam, I think, the, the under-23s were that year. And so they, they didn't get a result. But back here in New Zealand, they were going pretty quick. Like, we, we had money on them, like, getting definitely in the final, if not medals. And so he, he came to trials and he, and he did a bloody good erg. I think he was in the 50s or something. And then he seat raced and, and he was fast. You know, he was, he was quick enough. Uh, him and Carla got second at the national champs in the pair, so it was right in the game. And so he sort of came into the crew as, you know, 23, 23-year-old, 23 I think, 23-year-old. And um, and so it was he was young, enthusiastic, and he just had a drive. Um, you know, he was just – he was his philosophy is basically look at the person in front of you, see what they're doing, and try and beat them. You know, that, that's Hamish. All he did was he just – he'd watch what you're doing on the rowing machine, He'd sit next to you and he'd just try and bloody beat you the whole time. You know, and he's 10 kgs lighter. And all he did was he'd just kill himself to do it. But he'd, he'd managed to, like, stay there within a few metres. And you're like, jeez, like, the hell are you doing? But that's that was his philosophy. And he just, like, was like, well, I want to be the best. So to be the best, you've got to beat everybody else. So if somebody's doing something, I'm just going to match it. You know, and, and, and to, to, his, to everything that he's done from there onwards, it's exactly it all the time, and for him going back now in the boat, um, I know for a fact he's just going to try and beat, all, Like even though he hasn't been rowing for two years, he's just going to go back and try and beat all of these guys that have been rowing for two years in the program, and they'll be like, Jesus, like how did he get there? So if they don't click on to what he's been like in the past, they'll get surpassed, and then he'll be straight back on top of the blocks, which, which, he, which he can do, but it's also a great driving thing for them. So... You know, when he came into that crew, he just he brought a great energy, um, and yeah, and he just slotted into the dynamic. Um, but remember, he was in the bow seat. I was still stroking back then, um, so I was still leading the charge. And uh, yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't until after that year, and we had a I, I don't know was it like it's in my book that year was that year was I, I nearly quit after that year. Well, I didn't quit, but I was really pissed off we, because we we, we had wanted, a, we yeah had, we. We, I was looking at results. I looked at your 2006 World Championships, and it's the craziest, yeah, yeah. craziest semi-final I've oh, ever seen. Man. You guys must have been bitter after not making the A-final. Oh, I'll tell you what. It, it, pissed, it pissed me off because the, the problem was that, okay, we did hate it. You know, okay, fair game. And like I remember, we sat there looking at the bloody photo, and it was a dead heat. You could not separate it. And I was like, and like, it pissed us off because we should have probably been we shouldn't have been in third position. That's what pissed me off. I was like, we were good enough to be even better than that. Um, you know, but it was pretty rough and we just hit too much water. We didn't keep it clean and we ended up getting third dead heated. But of course, you know, they just couldn't. The problem was Visa had all the rules and all this sort of shit. And they, they made us do that re-row. And, and like even the Americans at the time, you know, and we, we, we got to know the guys quite well after that because we were like, okay, whoever wins this is it, is it, is it a disadvantage? You know, we were like, we should have just gone and raced the seven-lane final, which you can do. Everyone would have gone, okay, two dead heats. But well, you know who cares? Let's let's all race in the final because those guys got fourth in the end. You know, so there's no reason why we wouldn't have been bloody like yeah. well 
fifth, <laughs> fourth or fifth. Um, yeah. But that, that's what I'm saying. And so after that, we were pretty dejected because we had had a really good year. Like we'd been um, bronze, and then we were in the final at Lucerne. You know, I think we were fourth or fifth. And so it was actually a really good year for us. But then of course this shit happens at the end of it. And I remember like sitting on the finish line, and because our B final, we were toast because we had to do this re-race and then you're all dejected and we couldn't lift ourselves up the next day. Um, and I was just sitting there going, you know, screw this. Can't be bothered with this shit anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so it was it was quite dejecting from that. Um, and so it was it was really hard to pick ourselves up after that to really get back into it and, and do it again. Because like those, even though like it was an Olympic year, it was just a world champs year, but it was just, you know, having, having, been going well and then for something I wouldn't say well sort of out of your control that derails it all that really sort of is, is hard to to get your head around but if you learn from it that's one thing I've always said to people is I was like whatever happens you got to learn from it don't dwell on it just move forward and that's what I did you know by the time I had, had too many beers in London and then come back home um, I was ready to get back into it again so <laughs> yeah when did you guys do the re-roast straight off the semi no, so the rule stated that it had to be done within an hour of the race. What? So, but, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, shit, yeah, that's what made it piss off. Or like, and we were like, these are archaic rules, and, and so, of course, the New Zealand guys, the American guys were all sort of, we didn't know, so we are like, sitting there warming up, ready to go back on, and they're saying, it's, no, it's not on, yes, it is on, no, it's not on, yes, it is on, and we're like, look, what is it? And then they said, right, it's at 1 o'clock, you know, and it had been at, like, 11.30 or something, and they said, right, 1 o'clock on the start line. And then it was just the two of us to do bloody re-rays. So yeah, I think that's a, the only that's the only dead heat I can I can remember that yeah. I know of. I I've never heard of another another dead heat. There was another. There was actually a dead heat in, in Athens at the Olympics in the lightweight men's double, and the rules because the rules are different at the Olympics and they're a thing. They raced the seven lane final there. So this oh. was as everyone was going on, they were saying, "Look, you raced the seven lane final in Athens." And they said, yeah, but Olympic rules are different than world champ rules. And so they're all like, well, this is bullshit. But then basically after that year, it went back to there's no dead heat. Um, and it basically goes back to the person that had the better like result from the previous round or the faster time yeah. from the previous round. But that and is so such it's, shit, it's though. Come, I mean, it should, yeah, it really should all, be seven lanes. You have the space. I've not been on another course oh, yeah. that didn't have yeah. the space, and yeah. you just race it. It would be that would be perfect. I know, I know, but so you know that that's one thing that always go down in history is one of these things that oh yeah they'll be like oh is there any interesting races and you're like yeah well actually <laughs> it wasn't an interesting race because it pissed me off but um yeah like this this actually happened to us along the way so it's all it's all part of the journey. It's all part I, of the I was, journey. I was, I was looking at results and I'm like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. You guys came third because I didn't look at the times initially. I said, I was like, you guys came third in the semi final, but you're in the B final. Like, what, what's, what am I missing here? Am I reading this wrong? And then I went back and I looked at the yeah. times and I'm like, holy shit, these guys dead heated. And I scrolled to the bottom of the page well, that, and I saw there was some sort of extra row. I was like, this is the wild west <laughs> is happening out here. Well, the other, the other thing that made it worse at the time, which I remember, is on the big screen it came up that we were third. So, of course, we were sitting there going, oh, yeah, we're third. And then we did our warm down and we're like, shit. And then, but as we were warming down, someone like yelled off the bank and they said, oh, you did heated for like third. And we were like, oh. And so we just thought automatically, oh, okay, well, we'll be like seven lane final. So we had no idea until we came in, like, what the rules were. 
<laughs> that was, that's what made it worse because we were all like, we were a bit jovial, like, okay, sweet as shit, it's going to be a tough final. And then, oh, no, actually, <laughs> uh, just get back out on the water, eh, boys? Yes, that's, that's quite annoying. But I mean, I mean, if you if you look back at it, it seemed like it served you in good stead because I mean, two thousand and seven, you guys had a cracker year. Yeah, yeah. Well, what ha- what actually happened? And I, I, you know, because I've been rowing in the system since sort of two thousand and two thousand summer two thousand and one. Um, I came back home, and of course, because we didn't get the result that we wanted to, our funding like was still pretty low. And so I was like, look, honestly, I need to work a little bit more because I just got married to my wife. Um, to Jackie and stuff and so we're like it's one of these things you know your life starts to change a little bit and I was like you know what I don't know if I can just go back into the program and live off the bones of my ass and so a couple of the guys because our our Cox 4 that was there they'd been under 23 world champs and then they went there and got bronze so a couple of those guys were really eager and really keen and so they were rowing at my club at the time and I said well why don't we just go back and row at the club um, because, you know, there was only going to be like six of us in the program, which I didn't think was enough people because they didn't have enough funding to have everyone there. And so I said, well, why don't we just bugger off back to the club and we'll all row in an eight and stuff like this and, and you know, we'll, we'll bust it out. So we actually went back to the Waikato Rowing Club for that summer and we were humming, like we were going really fast. Um, and I was rowing a pair with James Dellinger, who was in our four, like the following year. And so we were going really quick, and we were basically keeping up. We won a couple of regattas against, like, Carl and, and Hamish and stuff like that. So, you know, we, we were we were training against the program, which was meant to be the, the be-all and end-all, and, you know, the only way that you can be successful. And here's us busting our gut, you know, working full-time, you know, guys milking cows and bloody being farmers and whatever else. Um, and then we were, we were just keeping up with all these people that were meant to be full-time athletes. So it was a great sort of rejuvenation. And then when we went back into the program, um, you know, we were just like, right, this year we don't want to be a statistic. We want to make sure that we're in the money. And and it just clicked, honestly. That 2007 crew, I don't know what it was. Eh? It would just, shit just went well. Like right from the word go, we, we did our trial in the in the four on Carapiro. I think we did like 551. And like everyone was like, holy shit, no one's ever been that fast in a four in New Zealand. You know, like it was it was just like that. And then our training the whole year, like nothing, you know, there's a few injuries here and there, but it just went really well. We just had this great dynamic. Um, we had an amazing, like James, especially James and probably myself as well. Um, we were like the power. So we had great sprinting ability. And then Carl and Hamish had this amazing endurance base. So we could get out of the blocks pretty well. And then we'd chug through the middle, but we had this amazing finish on us. <laughs> and we could come back from anywhere and just like bust through everybody and and that's basically how we worked that whole year um you know and we we won our first world cup in amsterdam and in, in the uh the second world cup and then we went toe to toe with the bloody british and the dutch got we ended up getting third actually into in the in lucerne but it was really close because everyone had clicked on that we had this amazing sprint um you know and then we went on to having uh, <laughs> We had the best training block between Lucerne and the World Champs. We went to this nice little place south of Munich and we drank a lot of beer and had a great time, trained really hard and then went into Munich and nailed it. You know, it was one of the best years I think I've ever had, um, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's really cool when the when a boat just clicks like that, though. And like often uh, guests on the show speak about like years or, or boats that they've got in, and it just worked, and it just is 
the boat just moves and you know there's like an element that is yeah unexplainable almost. yeah i i know and i like you know we've all we've all had it in clubs or in schools you know or whatever and you just get with like two or three people whatever it is you know and all of us it just goes well it goes feels like it's going really fast and you're just like wow this is great and it's just the combination somehow all the bits that you're doing right and all the bits that you're doing wrong just counteract each other and it just goes well. You know, you're not all doing the same wrong shit at the same time, which makes it terrible or slow. And that's what we had. And it just it just went well, you know, right from the word go all season. We just, we hummed along. Uh, but then, you know, going from that, the following year, we, we just couldn't find the magic. You know, we just couldn't get it back again. We didn't know what it was in that. 2007 year which actually made us go fast you know we didn't know if it was our training or if it were like the the, the weights we were doing or the speed work or the, the training or whatever or our setup whatever it was we just couldn't find that ounce of speed you know it was it literally it was just like half a split of speed that we were missing that we just could not quite find it again eh? and shit it was frustrating Man, it was a frustrating year. I mean, if you now that you obviously that's happened such a long time ago, now that you kind of reflect a bit on becoming world champions in two thousand and seven, what if you look back, what do you think went? What do you think happened between becoming world champions in two thousand and seven and then going towards the two thousand eight Olympics? Do you, do you have any other? I mean, do you have a better idea of like what where you kind of guys dropped the ball? I, oh, like Hamish got hit by a truck when he was out cycling, so he was out for like three months. Oh, oh that, yeah, nearly that makes a bit of sense. <laughs> that would do it. Hey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it did, but he was still like he came back super fit, like because he got hit. He got hit by this truck. It just like t- it just pulled out in front of him while he was humming down the road, and he just hit it with his shoulder and like busted his like collarbone and and popped the bloody muscles off the on like off his shoulder. What it's just a classic cycling injury. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he was he came back really fit, but just not probably the same muscle strength in the upper body. And yeah, I don't I don't know. Like it wasn't as if we weren't going fast, but it just didn't feel like the same fast that we had had. Like we didn't have the same pickup, and it was just it, it was you know it was just we we were just thinking shit. It doesn't feel like it definitely didn't feel the same training speed. You know, it was like sometimes you'd get back and you'd be like, I'm sure we were holding, you know, 146 or 147s into that tail breeze and today we're only doing 148, 40, you know, whatever it was. It just didn't feel exactly the same. And so the one the one thing moving forward from that, so in hindsight, looking back at it now, when, when something's going right, you've got, to, you've got to basically take a snapshot in your mind and you've got to say, okay, this is the training program that I'm doing. This is the technical focus that we're looking at at the moment. Um, this is the way that I'm rowing, this is how I'm feeling the boat, and that's got to be your benchmark, you know, and so if you three months down the track and you're like, you know what, shit, it's really unbalanced or there's something going right where it feels like we're rushing the front, you can go back to that snapshot and say, well, actually, we, we were working on all of these drills that would slow us down into the catch, you know, or whatever it was, or we were moving our hands quick around the back, we're probably not moving our hands quicker, so let's try that for a while. So you've got things to go back to do that made you go, go well in the first part so if you don't know what makes you go well in the first part which is what we what that's what happened to us in 2007 we didn't know what was we didn't know what it was you know but then going into the pier Hamish and I could look at things and say okay this this is going really well at the moment we're doing this really well and then when we try and make a change and look for a little bit more speed if it didn't work then we'd go back to doing what we were originally doing and then we would hold that and so that was probably that there is is 
is well it's it basically is the secret to why we were so consistent is because we we kept we knew what made us go well and then we were always trying to evolve it slightly not make massive wholesale changes but if it didn't quite work out or we didn't find any extra speed or if it started falling off the rails a little bit we knew what we had to go back to doing just in technique or in training and all that sort of thing um, in order to get back to the speed that we knew was good to start with. Yeah, so we're starting to, to touch on a pair. And I mean, I know you, I know you guys go into it uh, in your book, but you guys, how much, how much, of the, how much pair had you rode with Hamish uh, in before, before 2009? Yeah, so people, a lot of people ask, was there anything, you know, like that you regret about your time and all this sort of stuff. And the only one thing that I saw, I don't regret it, but, well, no, it sort of it sits right there on the fence. I wonder how fast Hamish and I would have been in 2008 at the Olympics if we'd been in the pair. Because we, when we when we were in the four, we obviously trained, like, in the pairs, and we would switch it up. And so I'd row with James, and then Hamish and Carl would row together, and then I'd row with uh, Bondi, and then James and Carl would row and we would absolutely destroy the other two. So when Carl and James rode together, it was a fucking disaster. <laughs> <laughs> but, then, but then when I was with James and Carl was with Bondi, it was pretty much the same speed. They were probably just a bit quicker in training, but in anything sprinting, James and I had it, like, hands down. And so basically we spent most of the time in our training in that combination because then it was either. Yes. Because we didn't like, yeah. And so what, what actually ended up happening though was Carl was injured. Carl was injured or Jane. One of them was sort of injured before one of the last regattas that we do here before like the national champs. And so Hamish and I got to race in the pair and we absolutely hammered George and Asa like 11 seconds. Holy right. shit! And so we, and, and, yeah, so we, we, and we did like six twenty one, like on Carapira, and like I, we, I remember finishing the race, going, holy shit! Like we were flying, and even our coach Chris at the end of it goes, man, you guys were smoking, and I was like, wow. But but we had to remember that we were world champions. You know, we had been training in the four, and our four didn't feel like like at the time it didn't feel like it was going slow or anything. Um, yeah. And so we were like, okay, well, look, we, we want to go and try and win the Olympics of four. We had no idea about the pair. We had no ambition to do the pair, you know, all of this sort of thing. But if we'd actually gone in the pair that year, what would have happened? Yeah. You know, like, that that's one thing that I look back on and go, okay. But, yeah, we, we didn't, apart from, we, we did a couple of rows in the pair, like when, when people would get injured or whatever. And, and we had one time in Poland we, when um, Bondi and I were in the pair, training against George and that, and we were keeping up with them pretty easily and sort of pacing, trying to pace a woman's eight in pieces and stuff like that. And it felt really good, but it was just occasionally. You know, it was never like, okay, we've got a couple of weeks, we're just going to be in the pier or whatever. So it was just the on, on again, off again. But as I say, it was one of these things that just, it just worked and then it went really well. <laughs> and then we just, from that, um, you know, it wasn't until after that's, you know, that's where the pier started. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite, um, it's like, I also think, like, when I think back to, like, even our years of, and then, like, when things could have gone differently, but it's quite, like, a dangerous thing to think about because, you know, when you're in the moment, you have to completely invest in the, the choices that are made. And then, obviously, with hindsight, oh, you, can, uh, you can think of all the different options that could have worked or, or 
different ideas that you could have done, but you know, in the moment, should have, would have. Yeah, yeah, in the moment, you you really can't be thinking like that because then it's definitely not going to work. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, you did right. And I, I also think, like on a, the other other side to that is, I mean, like you that you can that you can think like that. But also, I'll, I'll go as far to say that. You know, having a, a, a tough 2008 Olympic campaign, having a really shit 2006 World Championships, and those, I think those experiences are what made you as an athlete. You know, you wouldn't be the same athlete um, if you didn't go through those experiences. And I think it's much, you can apply this logic to basically anyone in any career. You know, those really tough times is what makes your success to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah, and, and it is, and, and I explain to people a lot when we, you know, because we, we talk to a lot of businesses and stuff and, and you know, and a lot of other athletes and, and whatnot, and, I'm, and and you've got to explain to them and say, you know, whatever you do is just an experiment, okay? So you, you get a crew together or you get put in a crew or whatever it is, um, and you've got 11 months to experiment to see how well you can get it going, and then you get to test it on the world stage, and then you go, yep, nah, Close, not really, um, and and then you do it all again. You know, like it's not like oh, we can just do we can do like six weeks and then we'll go and race the world champs or a world cup. Um, you know, you only get to do this once a year, and so you as, as exactly what you were saying, Lawrence. You just got to like commit. You got to commit to it for twelve months. You know, eleven months. You have the break where you're planning what you're doing, and then you go full heartedly eleven months of working up to that week in September or that week at the end of August, whatever it is, and that's going to be when I'm doing it. And, and it's the same in club rowing. You know, if you're if, like, over here, everyone races the national champs at the end of February. And so whatever happens and whatever they get into the program, they've either got to train all winter and then they hit the ground running and then they start racing in October and they test how it's going and then see how it goes in the national champs. And if it doesn't quite work out, if they don't make the national team, then they're like, oh, well, we've got to do it all again next year. <laughs> Yeah, um, going back to to quick races at uh, Carapiro, is there is there flow on Carapiro? Because I know like every now and then there's like oh, there, yeah. times yeah, yeah there like, can be okay. So sometimes it's yeah, like this, yeah, yeah. This we've we've like we know it's it's been mad because it's a hydro dam and it gets managed quite well. Um, anything that's sort of raced before nine a.m. in the morning is pretty quick. Um, and then basically anything that's done later in the day is pretty still. So the whole way that New Zealand works, there's like there's eight dams all the way up our river, and they just switch them all on at different times to manage the water flow because they've got to keep a natural flow of water down. Yes. And then, of course, the big cities in New Zealand, they smash the power between 6 a.m. and 9 a.m., and then they smash it again between uh, like 5 o'clock in the afternoon and 9 o'clock at night. Yeah. So those are when the, the dams rain. So if they're pumping the, get the electricity through the turbines, then, yeah, it can go. But, yeah, like we we notice it from time to time. Like sometimes you'll be like motoring back from the, the our turnaround point, you know, 10, 11 cap the river, and you'll be like, man, we're going pretty quick today. <laughs> they must be really working the dam. And, of course, if you get a little bit of tailwind with that as well, then it does go quick. But I wouldn't say it's like 10 seconds. I'd say it might be two or three. Um, you know, it, it's... It's noticeable, like if you sat in one position for five minutes, you'd go, oh, oh, we've drifted 30, 40 metres. Okay. You know, it's it's not like it's not like we're sitting there and you're watching the boys float by and you're counting them 
every sort of you know 30 seconds or something like that it takes quite a while but there's definitely like, there is there, there's obvious flow yeah if that makes sense i think it's just because like i think that's it is like it's not a lot so like every now and then like times come out of uh out of carapira and people are like holy shit this is like yeah. outrageously quick but then like there's always yeah. that debate going on as well so nice to to hear that it's oh, just yeah a, yeah it's, yeah most of the time most of the time we've done pretty slick conditions though um yeah we've had a really good tailwind like borderline because the lake's long enough if you get the strong wind and you just time it dead right like hamish and i we one time here we did a 616 here one time like building in i think it was 2011 before we went overseas but it was right on the cusp of literally blowing up so we were tapping a bit of water and we were going for it but we like basically 20 minutes after we finished it was shit you know like it, it had gone and we just managed you know it was that time yes. where that you could feel that you were sitting there like doing your warm-up and you're like wow that wind's coming in that's coming in you know and then just as we raced it was coming and it was going down pretty fast you know and you're in that sort of vortex where you don't really feel the wind but it's blowing really quick and we were honking down and like i think we we raced like the women's quad and like the men's double with nathan and joe at the time and see they went really fast and we went bloody quick and like all of us were like wow that was that was like the best the best conditions you could have possibly hoped for but you know we never struck them again you know so it's like those once in a once in a blue moon situation um and, and it does, you know, from every now and again, um, you can just get some, and it's probably the same on any other lake in the world, you know, you just manage to time it right, you do a piece at a certain point with a certain wind, and you're flying, and you're like, yeah, this is awesome. Yeah, you I know, know exactly. Keeps you going. In, on, our, on our dam uh, in Pretoria there, we every now and then we get it as well, usually up the track though, so it'll have to Opposite. be uh, a race that's like just in the national team. I remember yeah. the... The lightweights when they were really cooking in uh, 2012, 20 yeah I think 2012, they rode um, world record pace in the lightweight pair uh, and just oh, really yeah, flying, yeah. and that's at altitude as well. So they that 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 day I remember the water was cooking. Yeah, nice. So just to just to keep the listeners in the in the loop because I mean like we all three of us know the the results pretty well in the years, but just to keep the listeners in the loop. In 2008, you guys went to the Olympics and you guys came seventh. So that must yep. have been quite a, a heartbreaking Olympic campaign. But afterwards, did you and Hamish say to yourselves, all right, 2008 wasn't great, but we've had some magic in the pair. Let's see what we can do 2009. Yeah, I was, I was actually ready to have a break. Um, I, was, I was pretty much, I came back from that and I was just running and, like not doing any sort of rowing and maybe a bit of biking here and there. And I was playing some touch rugby and a few things with some mates and, and everything. But I, I was pretty, I was sitting there on the fence going, you know, I don't, I don't know if I can go back into the, like to just row a game because it was pretty heartbreaking. Um, like we, we were realistic going into it that it hadn't been a great season, but when we just missed out on that final, that really pissed me off. And I was like, you know, we, we should have probably, you know, we should have been in the final in my books. I think we were good enough to probably be right on the hunt for a medal. But I don't think we were, like, seventh, if that makes sense. So, you know, I, I knew it wasn't a great year, but I didn't think it was a seventh year. Um, yeah. You know, because we, we, we knew 
we knew it hadn't been like peachy, and I definitely knew we weren't going to win it because we'd done some training, and like the Aussies, I thought the Aussies were going to win it actually. To be fair, and because um, we'd done, we were training in Sydney at the time, and we did a couple of races against them, and we were like, Jesus, guys, flying. Um, but basically, um, yeah. After that, I was like, you know what? I'm, it's been a tough few years. Um, you know, we've been married a couple of years. I wanted to do some stuff with the wife, you know, and just have weekends and holidays, you know, all this sort of stuff. Um, and so I was working full time, um, you know, went back to my job and, and doing stuff. And then um, it wasn't until uh, it was probably like two months down the track, you know, and then um, basically Hamish came and said, you know, do you want to do the pair? And I was like, wow, actually. That sounds like a bloody great idea. Yeah. <laughs> and because just because we'd known how well it had gone previously, um, I thought Hamish, because he was talking about going sculling with, um, like doing a quad with, um, with like, or a double with uh, Nathan Cohen and stuff, because like Nathan had been in the double with Rob and that hadn't gone so well, but they had actually been training in the double and a quad and that sort of thing. And it wasn't until really like Hamish started thinking, well, where's, where's going to be my best option at trying to win a medal? And then that's where he said, well, I think we could do actually quite well in the pier. Um, and he yeah, turned up on doorstep and, and buddy asked me and the wife and said, oh, do you want to do the pier? And, and I said, well, look, you know, I still want to take it. I, I don't want to, I said, I don't really want to train full time, but I, like I still, yeah, it's a great opportunity because I said, we've got no funding. You're single, you're fine. i got bills to pay and, you know, all this other stuff. And, um, and he's like, oh, that's all right. So I went and spoke to, and then, the other thing that actually sort of piqued my interest was the fact that when when he broached the subject with Dick Tonks, so Dick Tonks is another bloody podcast man, I tell you. Um, <laughs> but he 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 basically said, "Oh, I think that'd be a really good idea if you're near a rugby pair together, and I'd coach you." So when you get him wanting to coach you, you know that you're onto something good because he's not going to do anything unless he sees merit. Um, and so when I heard that. And like the high performance manager said, oh look, you know Dick's really keen to coach you and Hamish in the pair. I was like, holy shit, here we go! Like this is this is an opportunity, um, you know, and it's just something you couldn't turn down, you know. And you know that that decision of going back there has <laughs> pretty much been <laughs> the rest of, of, the, of the history. That's what the legacy has been created. Yeah, for sure. So then, so now you're getting into the pair, and it's your your those first uh, those first uh, maybe those first few years when you you guys are in the pair. Then what is like, what is your inspiration in the pair? Like who? What are the other crews that you were watching that you were like, okay, shit, we can try and row like this, or we, were you trying to emulate anyone else's rowing, or you're just trying to do your own thing? We to be to be completely honest, we were just trying to survive. Um, so as as I said, like earlier in the um, earlier in the thing, where when when we thought we were training hard, <laughs> and then when we went under Jack Dick's tutelage, like holy shit, like we went from we went from thinking we trained hard to like survival mode, eh? And I, I did I like some of the stuff we did. I just thought was ridiculous, but it just it was it, it made you hard, and it just made you like so literally survive, you know, like. Um, and I remember at the time when we were in the four, we used to watch the Everswindale twins come up and they'd literally, we'd, we'd go, you know, 10, 12, 14, whatever it was, out the river, and they'd come along, they'd, you know, we'd be stopped there to have a debrief. You know, like everyone gets to a turnaround point, you stop, you have a drink, you have a gel, you have a stretch, you know, debrief, talk about how it's going, blah, 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 oh, it's a good weather today. 
they literally turned around, drunk as they were turning, and then buggered off again. And I remember sitting there in the floor one time going, I can't believe they do that, eh? And then when we were in the pair and Dick was with us, he goes, no stopping, drink and turn, drink and turn, drink and turn. Like literally the first week we were together. And I was like, oh, you were shitting me. And then basically it was like you drink and you go. And he he basically idles his boat and turns as you turn. And then as soon as he's straight, he puts the gas down. And so if you're not going, he washes you out and just catches up to like the next crew that he's already been set off. And I, and, I, and I mean, he washes you out. And even if he's two or three metres in front of you, he ain't getting out of your way. You've got to like try and get out of the wash, move to the side. And it was just this whole like, I'm not moving, just you fucking got to do it. And so that was, that was an eye-opener, you know, and I was like, oh, wow, okay, this is what we're in for. And then just the training ramped up, you know, the distance ramped up, the intensity ramped up, you know, he was just, he was like, you know, you guys have got to train faster, you got to, you got to get it up quicker, and, um, you know, we're going to do more pieces. And, and, like, we used to do squad stuff where you'd do, like, four lots of 4K and you change rates, you know, like... Oh, excuse me, like one might be 22, the next 24, 26, 28, or whatever it was, or even higher. And then you'd, you'd go and jump off the water, and then you get straight back on, do it again. You know, and, and like while everyone else is sitting there going, well, I'm pretty toast, or you do like a 5K race or a 10K race, like flat stick, open rate. And and then you'd be absolutely toast at the end of it, and you'd be like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm, I'm wrecked. And then you'd row, you'd row another couple of K down, get in the dock, and, wash the boat, put it away, and, and then he'd come and he'd see, like, the crew, because it was us, Women's Quad, Maha and Emma, that he had under his thing, and he'd be like, oh, I'll see you back on the water in, in 25 minutes, and we're like, oh, no, and then you'd know you were doing it again, you know, and we were just like, you're kidding me, and and he would, and he'd go right back up to the top, and he'd go, right, doing it again, and and he would, and, like, if you if you slowed too much from the first piece to the second piece, <laughs> He would be really angry about it, eh? and it was just, oh, you know, like just this this character buildingness from it was just ridiculous. But I'll tell you what, we could we could turn up from there. I could turn up on the start line, honestly, hand on heart, knowing that I'd probably done way more work than anyone else that I raced against. But then, then how are you like? How did you guys cope with that the amount of training? Like, how did you not uh, break your backs and ribs and all sorts? Oh, well, see, has, he did a, he did, he went to the coaches conference once, like the World Rowing one, and apparently he was meant to give a presentation that lasted about six minutes, and he just got up there and he said, look, you know, your crew shouldn't be your friends, you should be there, that you shouldn't have to tell them to turn up, they should want to be there, like all of this stuff, it was just like, I'm not, I'm not, and you know, he basically, and he said, if you're not, put, if they're not breaking down, you're not pushing them hard enough. <laughs> Um, you know, you've got to you got to do the work first. Worry about technique and stuff later. And and so that was one of our biggest philosophies going forward. Like he said it many a times. He said, you know, like and, and you guys will understand this. You know, you have a really bad race. You know, and you're like, man, our catches were shit in that race. And then you go at the next race and you really focus on the catch or the front turn and you go way better, right? So you can learn that. You can focus on something really quickly just from one race to another. If you haven't done the miles because you've been sitting you know, two or three times a week doing all this fluffy technical stuff. When you turn up and you're like, shit, we haven't done enough training, you can't do another 1,000 kilometres worth of training overnight, but you can make a really quick technical difference straight away, okay? And that was one of his philosophies was like, 
you got to put it in there. you got to be really, really fit. So you turn up and you're really fit. He goes, you might not be rowing very well, but you're going to be really fit. And he goes, and we'll get you rowing pretty good, but, um, you know, if we need to make some changes, we can do that and we can look at the focus, but you'll be fit enough to focus on that and still win. And it was true, you know, and, and that was the thing. It was you had to have resilience to go through it. And there were many a times... I think one of the, the best things, though, that we trained against a woman's quad. So we had the woman's quad as our pace boat. So, you know, we were pretty – the world records are pretty much the same, well, two or three seconds different back then. Um, and, and, of course, so we could just sit next to them the whole time and just pace off each other. And so what used to happen is we would – they would blow before we blew. So when, when the girls, like, lost their cookies and just, like, died because they were fatigued or whatever like that, we'd be normally pretty good. So that's probably one reason that we survived it because we we weren't the ones that were dying. It was sort of them dying and then they were the ones sort of setting the benchmark for, for how much we could actually do. Whereas if Dick was with us and he used to have this flat, like flat punt of a boat and he used to put his idle to a certain idle and just keep driving towards your stern and you'd have to keep putting in a bit more power or adding a little bit more rate to keep away from you or he would drive up on top of it. And like, I mean just drive up on top of it. And and he would. And and like and then he wouldn't stop. Like if he was getting like close to the rudder and stuff and like, you know, and it really slowed you down, then he'd pull it back. But he would just be going, keep it going. More, more like and that was him. That was just what he did. And it was just it was relentless. And that's why like you've already seen sort of stuff that Buddy Conlon's done on the erg, Buddy beating my hour work record. Yeah. Like, Canada is going to... Canada's going to come into this year super fit, man. Yeah. They might not be rowing very well, but they'll be super fit, man, and you'll be like, like holy shit, these Canadians can go. Yeah, we actually... Guarantee it. Yeah, Lawrence and I said, because we raced a pair last year with champs, and uh, in our heats, the Canadian pair hammered us, and we, beforehand, we didn't really... We didn't really think that they would be. We were saying, "Oh, the French, the French are going to be quick." Canada, you know, you don't quite sure, but we didn't. We didn't think they were going to be that fast. And then looking, I mean, the women's pair one that was a big one, and the and uh, um, I think the men's four was decent. So we said after World Champs next year, the Canadian men's, the Canadian team is going to be phenomenal. So I cannot, I cannot wait. I can't wait to see what um, what comes out of Canada this year. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm just looking forward to that actually, just to see what it's like. Um, because yeah, like, and, and and there is a flip side to it, you know, because we we had to take a lot of our own technical stuff under our belt because, uh, you know, like Dick, he's he's got a good eye, but he's more of a trainer than he is like a coach because he doesn't have any communication skills. They're fucking terrible, um, you know. And he 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 sort of can talk about a few things, but. I don't know if it really gets across that well. And, and you know, all you've got to do is, you know, talk to people that have been in the know rowing for ages and they look at people like the Twins and they look at Robert Dell and they'd probably say to you, look, it doesn't actually look that great, but they're big, they're strong, and shit, they can just keep going, yeah. you know. And, and that was us, you know. The one thing that we did is we took a little bit of initiative ourselves, um, you know, put some philosophies that we had heard around the, in the place, you know, just some visualizations of, of what we wanted to do, and um, and then all of a sudden, you know, it really, you know, we, we were just we were flying. Yeah, and I think also like when you when you're under pressure like that, and you you really ride on the on the limit, you can't just rely on power to keep yourself going. So you have to learn how to how to move the boat in some way. 
other than just working harder to um, to find yeah. speed. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, see, it happened like after after 2010 when we had our really close race with the British um, here at Carapiro. We we started back training and and Dick's you know like we we were in the weights room with Dick and and so you know when I talk about this hard training we'd be in the weights room for two hours and we would be doing like eighty to a hundred reps you know on squats or leg press or bench pull or whatever you know seated row because he was that was his you know he was like you just got to build the endurance into it and then he just flipped the one switch one day and he just came in and he goes right we're not doing weights today we're gonna go for another row. I reckon we'll get faster by being fitter than we are by being stronger. So instead of doing like two to three weight sessions a week, we ended up doing two or three more rows. So we went from doing, you know, anywhere from sort of 220k a week to like 260, 280. And it was horrible. You know, it was horrible because we were just like, some of them weren't too bad because he'd just do like some sprint stuff or he'd be like, okay, we're only going to go to the cliffs, but then I want you to really push it between the pylons and cliffs. So we're only like sort of three and a half k's out of, out of 12 on the way, so only three and a half k's on like the six k's on the way out, we had to really push it. And then on the way back, we'd do some sprints, prep. had to push it back into the dock or whatever. But it was still, he thought we were going to do better by doing more k's. And, and to be fair, we did. You know, like after that year, I, we really started going like super, super quick. Um, and uh, there was a flip side because we lost a little bit of the speed out of the blocks and we lost a little bit of the power. but our endurance speed and the ability to hold it for a long period of time. Like, man, we had some amazing 5K races where we were just flying for, like, 5K, and it just felt like we could go all day. Um, and it just came from that, basically, um, from from doing that. Yeah, and um, I you've, I feel like you've alluded to it a little bit, but I wanted to – well, we wanted to ask you, and I know I feel like I know the answer to this question. Who was the toughest combination you've ever raced in your time as a pair? Oh, the bloody South Africans in Rio, eh? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, oh, I'd have to say it was definitely the British. Um, like just because we had the rivalry, but um, you know, like we we ended up racing just about everybody. You know, someone did some stats that we ended up racing like, oh, like 150 different people or, or whatever it was. It was some ridiculous number of, of different different combinations and crews that had been in the pair over that time. Um, we we definitely had our closest races against those guys. We there was a couple at times. So in our whole time that we were together. There was only ever three occasions where we weren't leading with 500 meters to go, um, and so one of them was the British, one of them was the Canadians, and another was a Serbian pair. Um, so those those three, and so the British was Carapero. You know, they were they had three quarters of a length on us going into the last 500. The Canadians had half a length on us going into the the last 500. I think it was the no, it was or the final. I think that like in in Olympic year. Um, in in twenty in twenty twelve in Lucerne, uh, we we rode away from them quite comfortably in the last sort of three hundred meters, but they were still went toe to toe. And then it was like twenty fourteen or twenty fifteen. The Serbians had another go, like in the heat at Lucerne, and they were still leading us with five hundred meters. And I was like, Jesus, you guys are flying! But then of course they blew themselves up, and then I don't even think they made the final because they <laughs> done so much in yeah. the in the first races, but. 
definitely that British pair. You know, when we when we first came in the pair together, and of course they had won Olympic title, um, and they said, right, you know, Pete and Andy, they were number one, number two in testing. You know, on the machines, we put them in the pair together, and they pumped everyone else in their program. So. All we were reading and all we were seeing was that they won the first World Cup before, like in 2009. And so we were like, shit, these guys are going to be quick. And lo and behold, we ended up racing them on the very first race we had at the Munich World Cup, second World Cup in 2009. And we turned up and basically, um, like, I was thinking, shit, okay, (laughs) this is going to be the test because, you know, we'd been down in New Zealand. We knew we were going pretty well, but, like, I didn't know how well we were because we hadn't raced, like, any other pair at all, you know? Like, we'd raced doubles and quads and, and, like, cat and mouse games, but never, like, a a race race. And so then, um, yeah, and we just got on the start line and we were basically level 500, level 1,000, and we, we managed to be about half a length in front with 500 metres to go. And then we just pissed off. Like, we just rode away. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. And then from that, it basically set the scene because all we'd been hearing was these guys were going to be, like, the next best thing ever. And we were just like, okay. And then all of a sudden, it's like, shit, Kiwis are actually going pretty quick. Um, and then from there, it just became, yeah, this race that we'd, we'd tend to – We'd only end up tend to be racing them like in the finals at different regattas, um, but yeah, we had some we had some pretty tight races and some others that were like country mile, um, you know, and and it was it was probably that they were you know they were always getting second to us in those in that time, um, in that time working up to London, um, yeah, and and so they were they were definitely by far the fiercest rivals we had in that time, and then after that. It just chop and change, you know, but we did see, we saw a huge amount of change, not only in that, but in the pair itself and the way people raced the pair from like 2012 onwards, where after that year, after that first four years into the second four-year cycle that we did, you know, there was only like once in all the races that we did after London that we were leading after 500 metres. You know, so basically people were like, shit, if we want to try and beat Eric and Amish, we've got to get out front. <laughs> and, and so people started starting faster and, and holding on a little bit longer, but they just couldn't, like, you know, our training in that third 500, we just had to, um, you know, keep keep doing what we were doing in order to know that we were we were the only ones in the field, you know, and we, we, we sort of set the scene a little bit. But, you know, we could sub-split the second K. You know, we could we could go faster in our second and third 500 than we had in the first 500, you know. And yeah, it was just doing things like that that people were like, how the, how the hell do you do that? You know, like, that yeah. was just what we had trained to do. You know, we weren't – we were like, well, who cares if we do a 136 first 500 and someone does a 133? You know, they'll probably end up doing a 137 second. And we could probably end up doing a 135. So we're going to be even at the 1,000. And then we could do another 135 while they do a 139. So now we're four seconds in front. Yeah. You know, so it was just, it was, that was just the way that we started thinking about it and going, well, and if someone is still in front of us, then okay, we're going to have to dig deep. But that was, that was our mindset going forward. But the one thing that we never, ever, ever did was we never, ever disregarded anybody that we raced against. So we never went out there and said, oh, we should. Like, I was always, like, confident, and I said, okay, if we do this properly, Hamish, we should be able to win. I said, if we if we screw something up, okay, it's going to be us not doing it. And I said, but everyone's out there to beat us, and I said it every single time we did it. I said, we've got to give everyone respect that they're all here to try and win. And I said, so we've got to make sure we do – we, we, we 
compete and do what we can to our capabilities. And it was, a, it was another one of our philosophies we live by. And I said, if we go out there and we do everything we're trained to do and we go as fast as we know we can go, and if somebody beats us and we take it on the chin and know that they're quicker. Yeah. And that's what we live by the whole time. You know, like you've just got to know, you know, and that's why that's why you do races 10 days out from a world champ, you know. And, and if you do if you do six minutes 40 in the pair, then shit, you're, not, you're probably not going to be doing six minutes 20 when you turn up on the start line. And so if you've got to be happy with where you're at, um, and that's basically what we lived by. You know, we, we always tested ourselves to know how quick we were going so that we could say, okay, this is all we can do. And there were a couple of times, there was a couple of times where, like, Hamish had been injured or had been sick or whatever it was, and um, we'd do, like, a, a piece, you know, like a couple of days out from the World Cup, and, and we'd be pretty slow, you know, over 1,000 or 1,500, and we'd be like, shit, okay, that's all we're going to be able to do. Um, well, let's hope it's enough. Um, and, you know, there was a few, like, I think the Bled World Cup in, I think it was 2010, you know, we only won by 0.9 of a second. It was less than a second. Um, but it was because we'd been injured and sick going into it, and we knew that it was going to be, like, touch and go. Um, but, you know, it was still enough to, to get us across the line. Yeah. Did you guys, do you, like, deliberately, I mean, I, I know you, you, you touched on it a bit, but did you, like, deliberately go out at at an even split or did that only like really come on later on just from the experience of like okay we want to go out 130, uh, 136 and then we want to hold that that speed all the way through or 135 yeah we're, we're not focused too much like on splits um you know while we're racing i never had a speed coach hamish had the speed coach in front of him and he half the time he forgot to turn the bloody thing on so and he never really focused on it um you know we just got into our groove and, and did what we would um and, and it all sort of came with because you know conditions change so much. You know, it's mm. not like you know if you've got a bit, if you're flat conditions and we're like pushing 138, it's like that's a pretty good time. You know, um, but you know if you're sort of th- sitting there going, oh, we should be doing 136, I push fast. You know, like that, you you can't sort of rely on that too much. You've got to think about the people that are around you. But our, our thinking, and it came from when we were in the four, our coach Chris Nielsen at the time, and he came from america in their program and he said that like mike tady was massive on like especially in the eight he said if you fade any more than like a second to two seconds in the second 500 and if you go any slower in the third 500 you'll lose he said it's just how it is and so we took that in the four that if we if we slowed like more than two seconds from the first to the second 500 we'd be disappointed and if we slowed any more than a second in that third 500 then in the second 500 we'd be disappointed you know and so that was basically the way that we we tried to structure it where you know you can you can look at as much data as you want and you can see people that do these you know like the fours you know when we were racing in the four and their first times canada was doing like a 123 then a 130 and then they'd do like a 133 but they'd still be in front because they'd done this amazing first 500 meter <laughs> so there are different ways you can race it but our philosophy was just like Come out, you know, you've got you've got 45 seconds of, of pretty high intensity and you've got to be into a good rhythm after 200 to 300 and then you've got to sit into it and you've got to be like sitting on your numbers or sitting on your rhythm after 400 metres and you've got to just sit on it, you know, and you just got to like tr- chug along. And then the third 500 was always our focus. Like we just always, always just wanted to make sure there was no fade. Every single race I'd call no fade 
no fade, and we just make sure that we weren't slowing down at all. Because if you can get in front, you know, if you've got a length clear water or something going into the last 500 metres, it makes the last 500 metres so enjoyable, you know, like, because you're just like, oh, i got a buffer. You know, I can see people sprinting at us, and you're like, do I want to wind? Nah, yeah, nah, you know. But if you're sitting there in a race, which, which it happens, and obviously, you know, we evolved out of that when we were in the four, you're sitting there and you start getting pretty desperate. You know, you're like, is my bowman going to call up? I want to call up. Are we going to sprint? Are we not going to sprint? Should we go now? Should we not go now? And of course, all of that stuff's running through your head. And so, yeah, that, that, that was a big part of it. But yeah, if we could just hold a consistent speed, if we could hold a speed that nobody else managed to hold, we knew that we would be moving faster than everybody else. And of course, everybody's going to slow. That's remember that and, and i tell all the everyone i talk to they're like oh you guys used to move away from all these other crews and i went no no, no. we were slowing down they were just slowing down by more <laughs> and so that's the thing as long as you don't slow down too much um you know you'll be able to manage that speed and, and stay stay where you are so then uh during the race and, and especially during training then like on the the technical calls what are the what are the technical focuses during the race uh what are you saying in the race or or in training What's the focus on like rhythm and uh, the technical aspects of the Yeah, sport? yeah. Well, we 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 came we came across. I don't know if you have you guys ever like heard of um, or, or heard Drew Jin's podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we actually had did, uh, like, Drew. We had Drew on our podcast and uh, chatted in depth on uh, will it make the boat go faster? Yeah, yeah, I know. And like we we listened to it, and it was like a light switch going off. It's like this is sort of. It just put into words sort of things that we were trying to work on at the time, you know, because in the pair, you know, you, you're just trying to be really smooth on the boat, you know. If you can just not affect the boat as much, then you can go really quick. And that's, we pretty much started doing, not to the degree that the Aussies did with, and, and, it, and you watch it now with all the rowing that's happening around the world, it used to be really fast off the back, right? And now everyone's just got this patience to let the boat run, you know, and so we started doing that. We started like sort of not pausing at the back, but just like really smooth roll and then one speed on the slide forward, you know, not slowing into the front. It was like one speed forward and we could feel the boat just zip underneath us. And we were like, wow. And, you know, when we didn't pick up the catch very well, yeah, it went, it went slow. You know, you'd be like, okay, no, we're not getting the catch very well and the boat's, you know, it's slowing down more than it should. But then when we were picking the boat up and just tapping it along, shit, we were getting some fast speed. Um, and, and that's what we just started to work on. You know, we just started to work on this, the fact that the only reason that the boat's slowing down is because you're doing something to upset it. Um, and so, you know, everyone's working hard. doesn't matter who you are. You're a school kid. You're a club rower. You're an elite rower. Everyone's working hard. But it's the people that have the less effect on the boat are the ones that go the fastest, you know. And, and that's basically what we started to think about um, you know, like picking up the speed of the boat at the front, being light on it, um, you know, not hitting the catch, not smashing it into the finish. And even Hamish sort of picked it up. He's like, you know, what, why? And, and he said to like Dick one time, and Dick didn't really like it. He's like, well, why am I hitting my body with my arms? You know, why am I, why am I pulling the handle into the body? And he's like, well, that's where you finish. And he's like, yeah, but I've actually lost all the power and the oars starting to come out of the water. And I've still got about six inches towards the body. So why shouldn't I just take it out? And so if you watch a lot of Hamish's races, it doesn't even touch the body. 
doesn't even touch the body. Because the, the fact is that the, the blade's coming out, you've created all the power, the, the, the pressure's caught up behind the, the oar in the water, in the puddle, and then the blade wasp wants to come out of the water. So if you, like, hold it into the body, and then, like, it almost feels like it's getting stuck. What are you doing? You're slowing the boat down. So everything we did was just around, like, rhythm and feel um, and, and just trying to make it easy, <laughs> which, which sounds dumb, but that, that was basically what we were trying to do was make it feel easy. So I'd just do all the calling from the bow, and I it would just be, like, simple one words like catch, finish, and, and they meant a lot because in training when I was talking about the catch, if I said, like, light catch, it meant that I felt like we were hitting the front, not just letting the blade go into the slot, you know, not just falling into the water and then taking the pressure. And same with the finish. If I felt like we were holding it on too long, pulling it into the body, I'd call finish, and then in the next minute we'd be free with the hands and they'd be finishing a little bit before the body, and then the boat would feel like it was going quicker. So apart from that, we never, like, we never really like did massive moves we never went like okay let's go 10 let's push because we we did for a while because it was just what everybody did you know it's just what everyone does they're like right 10 focus boom you know push push and what we were finding was get this like two two splits jump in speed and then after 10 stroke it's back to where it was or even slower and so we were like hmm, okay uh maybe let's not try and gain heaps more speed let's just try and keep what we've already got or make it more efficient. So that was really just what we were trying to focus on. And and you guys will know what it's like, man. You can't have sentences, eh? It's like one word, yeah, and then, yeah, and then big breath, tough. big breath along the way. Um, and so yeah, and, and Hamish would chime in from time to time, like if he if he wanted to to go up or whatever, he would just do it, you know. And and that was the one thing over the time we just got to learn what we needed to do and and just make it make it easy like make it smooth and easy and that was and that was basically how we we looked at it yeah i mean like you've you spoke about uh drugin i mean when we chatted to drugin that was a big overriding theme of his philosophy of rowing is just you know making making the the rhythm easy focusing on the feel of the boat because he said around the time that he was coming around there was a general consensus consensus in heavyweight rowing that heavyweights were just big, strong guys, and like technique, you you know, didn't worry too much. You just, you know, smash the boat to get that thing up to speed. And he was like, "No, this doesn't make yep. sense." Um, but also, when we chatted oh, to yeah. when you chatted to Drew, one of one of the the questions we asked him was, you know, we we set up a hypothetical example of like, you know, how cool it would have been for him, um, him and uh, Gin and Duncan Free, or him and and James Tompkins to race you guys in the Kiwi pair, and also. Add in Matthew Pinson. Nah, we'd, we'd, hammer them, we'd hammer them easy. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> that and Dustin. Well, he, he would have loved to erase you guys. I was thought maybe because, I mean, Pinson and Redgrave, I mean, Pinson and Cracknell had the record before you guys broke it. I think it, having watching yeah, three, yeah. three pairs race against each other would have been awesome. Well, see, I, I had a good yarn. I remember having a yarn to both Jimmy and, and, uh, and Drew at one stage. And Drew always said that him and James, especially around sort of 99 when they were really flying, he always thought that like between 6.10 and 6.12, he reckoned 6.12 was his magical number. Yeah. They reckon they could have done it 6.12, like given all the like peaking, world champs, beautiful tailwind, warm water in the right location. 
he reckoned 6-12 because at the time I think the record was like 6-16 or whatever it was. Um, and he reckoned that, yeah, at the time they thought 6-12 was, was where they could get. Um, and I, I never, I like, for what we did, I never, yeah, like, you know, Pinson and Cracknell, they were big and strong. And that's the thing, you know, like they could really get some good speed and have a good change in speed. Um, I have no idea. Like, I, I still think we would have probably won on all occasions, but you know, it's hard to say because slightly different eras, different boats. You know, like Drew and Dun- uh, Drew and um, Drew and James, I think were probably the better two. Um, like from from watching the stuff they were doing in '99, should have looked effortless. You know, it looked beautiful. Yeah. Um, and if you know, but you're still using side stay riggers, you know, and boats like that. It wasn't bloody wing and carbon and full carbon boats or anything like that. So, you know, what would they have been like now with and, and it's one thing I think about with Robert Dell. You know, like if Robert Dell was in the programs now, like okay, he came back in two thousand and eight, but I still think it was just just on the on the precipice of moving into like full time, full physiology, like data coming out of your ears with GPS and shit like that. See, if he was in the program now, I reckon he would be unstoppable. Yeah, he's going to be like Ollie's. He's going to be like Ollie Zeidler. Like he's that guy is going to dominate the single for the next ten years. Yeah, as long as he doesn't, as long as he doesn't like blow himself out, the guy goes as fast as Robert L. He's going to probably go. But well, he's going faster. He's bigger, you know, like and and he's got amazing technique and he's young and he could just dominate, you know, like. That's the thing. And the singles, it's size that matter. You yeah. know, and he's got the size on everyone else and he could just dominate. Um, yeah. So it'll it'll be interesting. I think interesting. I mean like you know, I, I would still I would definitely put my money on you guys to win. But I mean you, you said it you said it just now, whenever when whenever we watched Drew racing in those pair combinations it really did look easy. I mean, I looked at their rowing, I'm like, holy shit, it kind of looks like they're rowing at steady state. I know they're working really hard, but it looks so natural. I mean, and they're pumping yeah. down a track during the race. I mean, it's it's crazy to to get that kind of rowing at, uh, at a, a maximum effort. Yeah, and that was one of, like the one thing we always tried to do in training was that, you know, you've, you want to work, as, as I said before, you know, you've got to work as hard as you can in the drive but then when your blade's not in the water, you don't want to be doing a single thing. You want to be switching your legs off. You want to have loose arms. You want to relax the face. You want to do all of this. So therefore, you can produce more power, which makes the boat go faster. And then you take that up in rates. You know, There's nothing worse than watching people doing races, and they're just grimacing the whole time. You know, And they're going as hard as they can, and they're just grimacing. And you're like, you're using... 10 watts per stroke and just holding the muscles in your face okay <laughs> you could be using it in the boat you know yeah. and whatever else if your shoulders are tense or whatever it is um you know it's a classic italians they're just like hunched over going, dick, 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 dick. it's like but but that you know it's it's a, it's a way of, of rowing you know it's all different all around the world and you know what and that's the thing you know what worked for us if I tried to coach someone else to do it, maybe I could never get them to think about how we did it. Or if we tried to get someone in a four to do it, maybe it would go like a disaster. You know, you just never know. Um, you know, and that's the awesome thing about rowing. Yeah. Is that there's not one way to do it. There's so many different ways. There's so many physiologies. There's so many personalities. Um, there's just so much that goes into rowing. And that's what makes it an amazing sport that it, 
it's so simple, but it's so complex at the same time. Mm. Yeah, it just reminds me, uh, I think one of, maybe like when I was uh, my first year under 23s, I remember rowing and the coach just screaming across at another guy in the boat and just screaming, relax your face. <laughs> and uh, really, really yeah. classic, uh, just wasting energy and pulling a, pulling a face. And then also on on the lightness, though, I think a classic example of rowing easy is that time when uh, when Hamish dips his hand in the water during the One World Cup um, during the recovery. <laughs> oh, no. So I think just yeah, that's that was, also. I can't sh- believe I can't believe he did that. Yeah, twenty fifteen egg bullet. Yeah, twenty fifteen egg bullet, and the bloody yeah he puts his bloody hand in the water. I couldn't believe that because uh, <laughs> like. Yeah, we like we had wooden handles and we cleaned them up. But of course, yeah, like you, you try and splash them at the start of the race. But if you get a bit of sweat on them or it gets dry, you know, there's that perfect time when it's just beautiful and grippy and it's got the the perfect amount of moisture on it and everything. And then yeah, we're going along and he just went dip, and I went okay. Uh, it could have been a disaster. Yeah. And yeah, and like, because we used to do it in training quite a lot, especially in our long distance races. Like, we used to both dip our hands in as much as we could. Mm. And like, you'd time it and you'd be sitting there going, this, no, 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 next, yep, no, you know, like trying to get the right time. Can I do it? And, and we used to be able to get it down pat. But yeah, it's like in the middle of a race. I was like, holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> Cool, so that's a wrap for part one of Eric Murray. Uh, I really hope you guys enjoyed that as much as we did. I mean, it's just such a wide-ranging conversation and it's just uh, getting to such cool stuff that uh, you don't really see or hear anywhere else. And yeah, I think part two is going to be even better. Yeah, part two is going to be awesome. Um, part two we're going to get into is years racing in the pair. So those you don't want to miss that. Um, we talk about, of course, the quick-fire questions that always have fantastic answers and i think Eric eric murray was uh, on point um and then of course we chat to him about what he's doing at the moment he's uh, got his youtube channel out there um uh, working with concept two so yeah know. so if you like uh, anything on the ergo then he's really putting out some cool stuff there so you can go and learn how to crank the erg no for sure and then i think also a big part in us researching this episode is uh, we read his book with hamish the kiwi pair um so if you listen to this, please go give that a read. It was awesome uh, reading that book. It helped us research um, for this for this episode. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just a fantastic story. Yeah, it gives you such good insight into, into the journey that they've been on. So yeah, go give it a listen. And we'll see you guys in a short while for part two. Yeah, sweet. Hang tight. Ciao.